a Podcast One production. Ben Greenfield is one of the world's greatest biohackers, human performance coaches, and was recently named the fittest man alive. Ben's practices for optimising our mental and physical performance have helped the lives of millions. Ben says, getting out of bed each morning with a reason for living is as important as sunshine and fresh water. In the conversation that follows, Ben and I discuss how we can reverse our biological age, raising kids, and the importance of having a purpose. If you don't have purpose in life, your reason for living that rips you out of bed every morning with a big smile on your face because you know you're going out and fully living your life's purpose with the unique skill set that you have, it doesn't matter how tuned in you are physically, you're still going to have some resistance to simply being productive during the day because you'll have that overwhelming sense that whatever you're doing is not super duper meaningful or fulfilling. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Ben Greenfield is a New York Times best-selling author of many books, including Beyond Training and his newest book, Boundless. You can find his longevity blueprint course at mindvalley.com. In this episode, you will learn how by getting our mind and body in order, we can positively improve not only our family life, but every single connection we make. Ben, tell us a bit about your upbringing, because I know that you had a different sort of upbringing. Tell us a bit about that. I was homeschooled uh, with a, uh, along with my siblings and uh, developed a great deal of love for the outdoors and for, uh, for reading and learning and teaching and writing, something I still do quite a bit of these days. But um, yeah, I spent a lot of time kind of doing what I'm doing right now as I'm talking to you, hiking out in the woods. Yeah. And uh, later on in my life, you know, really got into things like plant foraging and, and bow hunting and have continued to develop uh, a really, really curious uh, attitude towards all things uh, that surround us in God's creation out here in the great outdoors. But then I also um, spent a lot of time studying exercise physiology and biomechanics and nutrition and pharmaceuticals at the university level at University of Idaho. And, um, you know, after a short stint in a collegiate tennis career, kind of branched out and, and uh, opened up a whole lot of personal training studios and gyms and partnered with a lot of physicians and began to work with a large number of clientele on everything from you know muscle gain to fat loss to nutrition optimization. Uh, increasingly now, uh, even though I'm no longer operating those studios and gyms and instead work virtually with people from all over the world and do a lot more speaking and podcasting and writing, uh, you know, a lot more now in the in the realm of things like biohacking and anti-aging and longevity and, you know, some of some of these more fringe realms of wellness. Uh, so yeah, I live out here now in Washington state with my wife and my twin boys. I, uh, I have a supplements company called Keon that we operate out of Boulder, Colorado and, uh, spend a lot of my time writing articles, writing books. Uh, I have a podcast that I put out a couple of times a week. And, uh, then I, I just consult with people from all over the world about their 
health, longevity, you know, performance, mental optimization, etc. And until about you know, 90 days ago, I was on a plane a couple of times a week, just traveling all over the world, giving talks and speeches and you know, a little bit less of that now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my background, where I come from. Ben, tell us a bit about homeschooling, because you obviously are a particularly very smart human being. How, how was that? And I know that you grew up in quite a religious family. Yeah, you know, um, well, homeschooling, uh, the way that I did it was a more formal approach to homeschooling in which, uh, you know, a parent or parents or a home teacher or tutor kind of uses a set, uh, a set of curriculum, you know, a set number of books, math, science, social studies, you know, um, reading, writing, etc. very similar to, to a traditional school, but simply in the home. You know, the teaching is done, you know, as, as many kind of picture homeschooling to be, you know, gathered around the kitchen table with, with mom or doing a science project with dad in the garage. And, and so um, that, that's really the way that I was homeschooled was straight out of a curriculum where we'd, you know, gather around the table, me and my siblings, and we'd go through all of our homework, all of our lessons for the day. We'd all learn at our own pace. And then, um, you know, typically school would be done with by about 1 p.m. or so. And after that, we were free to, to, you know, go to the library and read or play with musical instruments or, you know, do whatever other extracurriculars that we wanted to be engaged in. And uh, that was interesting. I think it really helped turn me into kind of a, kind of an independent free thinker, um, a little bit less of kind of a, you know, a factory worker-esque approach to schooling uh, just because everything's kind of dialed into the individual. However, we, we have an approach with our twin boys where we do a little bit more unschooling, meaning there is no set regular curriculum. There is no formula. Uh, we simply have a meeting with our boys at the beginning of each week. We have, we have these wonderful family dinners every single night. And, and one is always set aside to just chat about their passions, their interests, what, what they really want to delve into. And then we simply surround them with, with teachers, with books, with activities, with toys, with games, with everything that fuels what they might be interested in, right? Like right now, they're very into uh, molecular gastronomy or figuring out new ways to cook meals using novel ingredients or novel cooking methods, you know, like, like sous vide and, and uh, you know, making gels and creams and mousses and souffles and things like that. And they're, uh, they're also very into, uh, into shooting their bows and getting ready to go on a deer hunt in September. So they're doing a lot more kind of you know, hiking with their backpacks on and shooting their bows out in the forest and uh, they're into plant foraging. So they, they make a lot of meals gathering things like wild metal and mint and mushrooms and things like that from the forest. They, uh, they, they really truly right now want to be um, uh, authors. And so they also do a lot of work on, on illustrating and writing and some books that they're working on. And, um, you know, we, we certainly ensure that we also engage them in things that they might not know are going to be good for them, but that will serve them in the future, you know, such as computer programming or math. It's not as though they wake up in the morning and have a deep, deep desire to go and crack open a math book and learn geometry. Yet we also ensure that that's a part of what they're doing just so that they're prepared later on in life for things that they might not have been aware of earlier in life that they, that they needed to know skill-wise, you know, should they want to be an engineer or, or a physician or, you know, or, or something like that. And so, um, so yeah, you know, I was homeschooled. My kids are a little bit more unschooled, but, you know, I, I think it was, a, it was a great way to learn. I would say the only weakness is that, you know, because I did so much individually growing up, 
once I got to college, I had to learn a lot more about, you know, cooperating with the team, interacting with the group, not necessarily taking charge of a project and micromanaging and being the, you know, the sole team leader on a project. But, you know, I, I learned that type of stuff pretty easily as I engaged in more, more social interaction in college and more group projects. And, um, and yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, it's really a great way to go. Uh, if parents are willing to, you know, put the time in, uh, and, or, you know, get, get some good local teachers or tutors, some online classes, some community-based excursions to museums and extracurricular events, some group-based, you know, sporting activities and clubs and things like that. So the kids are out seeing friends. And, um, I, I think it, I think it can be done and it can be done well. And, uh, I think it's a great alternative to traditional schooling. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it is. How did you get your love of the outdoors? You know, I, I grew up kind of sort of in the countryside. So I was, I was outdoors a lot. Um, I always just, you know, I, I think it's programmed into me. I've just, I've loved fresh air. I've loved, you know, swimming in, in open water, oceans and lakes and rivers. I've always loved, you know, animals and insects and, and foraging for plants. And so, you know, I, I think it was just a little bit more, uh, well, really probably a combination of nature and nurture paradoxically, you know, my, my dad was a city boy. He moved to Idaho from Miami. My mom was a city girl. She moved to Idaho from Detroit and they got married in Idaho. So they both came from, you know, they weren't into hunting or fishing or the outdoors or anything like that. But, you know, as kids kind of grew up in that environment. And so I think I just developed a love for it at an early age, you know, and it's funny because now, you know, science is showing the things like, you know, forest bathing, you know, as the Japanese would call it, Shinrin Yoku or, um, you know, time spent outdoors or being in touch with the planet earth, you know, barefoot or swimming in the ocean. There's actually a variety of, of beneficial health effects that are derived from, from so-called outdoors therapy. So it turns out that, you know, I've, I've now woven in a lot this on, on having this intimate connection with our, with our planet, uh, into, you know, a lot of, a lot of the health advice that I give to people. I think it's, it's, you know, more important, honestly, to be outdoors, walking in the sunshine than it is to be, you know, in a stale health club jamming away on an elliptical trainer. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's something that I, that I kind of grew up with and that I've continued to grow to love and probably not living in LA or New York or a big city. And instead kind of being out in the countryside still just continues to fuel that. And you were accepted into six medical schools, but you decided to go into exercise physiology and biomechanics. What made you want to do that? Well, I, I, I did a, a stint in, uh, in the private sector in, in surgical sales, hip and knee surgical sales, when I graduated. Um, and, you know, being immersed in, in that side of medicine for about six months and encountering a lot of unhappy physicians, seeing a lot of the broken medical system, you know, $40,000 overpriced hip implants being paid for by, you know, other people who are part of that insurance plan and being put into, you know, morbidly obese individuals who probably wouldn't need the hip replacement if they'd been given more preventive health advice from their physician. Um, a lot of unhappy overworked doctors who are too busy with paperwork and, and, you know, and filings to be able to spend much time with their, you know, big houses or boats or families and, you know, not a single doctor really told me at that time it, it was, it would be a, a, a smart move to go to medical school. And I, you know, I, I just did not, I did not feel called to go into medicine after that experience, but I really still had a deep passion for physical culture, for anatomy, for physiology, for training, 
uh, for the outdoors, even for nutrition and healthy cooking and meal preparation. And so, you know, I opted instead to go more of the more of the fitness slash nutrition route. You're a bodybuilder for a while and you did Ironman training and obviously we're amazing at that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Like you mentioned, I did bodybuilding uh, for a for a couple of years in, in college, you know, kind of decoded how to put on massive amounts of muscle. I went from about 175 pounds to 215 pounds and 3% body fat via a variety of nutritional tactics and a high protein, low carb diet and a lot of, you know, large multi-joint lifts. And then after that, I got a, a real interest after attending an Ironman triathlon to kind of pivot and go on and do uh, about 10 years of racing in triathlon and Ironman. And after that, I, I realized that that uh, I was getting kind of burnt out on that and, and kind of saw this sport of obstacle racing and then raced professionally for, uh, for Reebok and Spartan racing for about four years. And, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm, you know, getting a lot more into just training for hunting and fishing and things like that, 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 you know, I consider to be even more natural, but really, you know, for me, especially after bodybuilding and Ironman triathlon, I had a real light bulb moment that all of these activities that, one might perceive to be noble and laudable pursuits of fitness and the ultimate way to become healthy were in fact, not only for myself, but a variety of individuals I was working with resulting in things like, you know, rampant thyroid dysfunction and low testosterone and full body inflammation. And so, you know, at that, that was when I wrote a book called Beyond Training, which really unpacked this whole idea of going beyond just training, going beyond just fitness. You know, what can an athlete do to really optimize their gut, their brain, their hormones, their sleep, and a lot of factors that tend to get left on the table if you're just, say, you know, exercising to eat and eating to exercise. And, um, you know, for, for me, that really did influence my decision to not be engaged in a sport like bodybuilding for life or Ironman for life. I, I not only consider those to be somewhat selfish activities, you know, because you're spending a lot of time just by yourself training just for a goal that may not be that impactful in terms of changing the world with your true purpose in life. And I also, uh, over and over again, myself and again, and many other people I was working with was seeing a lot of, a lot of health issues pile up uh, in folks who were engaged in those type of sports versus the people who were super healthy being the people who were like walking a lot during the day in the sunshine lifting heavy weights every once in a while, playing some tennis or swimming and, and not taking this whole kind of more masochistic approach to fitness. So, you know, I, I think with activities like say bodybuilding or Ironman, they can be inspirational to other people, especially if you're overcoming a personal barrier in order to be able to say cross the finish line on an Ironman or, you know, lose 40 pounds and be on stage flexing. I think that they can be, a good way to climb your own personal Mount Everest and set up a challenge for yourself. They'll keep you motivated. However, I think that if the entire book of your life is chapter after chapter bodybuilding or chapter after chapter Ironman, you might arrive at the end of your life on your deathbed and wish that perhaps you'd spent a little bit less time swimming and biking and running and perhaps a little bit more time engaged in relationships, family, gratitude, love, service in your local community and a more a more natural approach to fitness, so to speak. It was shortening your lifespan doing that kind of exercise as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's research that has been done on, on kind of the mortality curve in response to exercise. And it turns out that 
once you exceed about 60 minutes of moderate to intense exercise per day, or about 90 minutes of you know, low to moderate aerobic exercise per day, you actually see a law of diminishing returns and an increased risk of mortality. You know, things like arterial stiffness or an enlarged you know, uh, left ventricle of the heart, uh, inflammation, poor blood glucose management, and all these factors that pile up because you're sending your body a message that not only are you running from a lion every day, but you're probably running from a lion multiple times for great distances. And that's not simply something that is ancestrally appropriate for the, for the human body, right? As, 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 you know, ancestral hunter gatherers and, and foragers and, you know, and, and biological beings who would have normally been out engaged in low level physical activity, like walking or moving or gardening or, or hunting during the day with occasional spurts of, of battle or taking down a large animal or running from a lion or something like that. That, that's, that's a little bit more of an ancestrally appropriate scenario. And when we instead just, you know, get up in the morning and grind on the treadmill for an hour and then maybe go going for a CrossFit workout in the afternoon, you know, that's, that's a whole different approach to movement that frankly, you know, up until the physical culture emergence, right. And the advent of gyms and health clubs, you know, in the past hundred years, most of that would have originally been relegated to the realm of the athlete or the gladiator, the warrior, the person who, you know, frankly would end up being that individual who might, you know, be great at battle or might, you know, compete for their country in the Olympics, but was not necessarily expected to, you know, to live a long time, you know, versus the, uh, the, you know, the elderly wise Japanese sage eating miso soup and fish and seaweed and going on a walk every day. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, kind of two different approaches to caring for the human body. And I think sometimes we, we think that that health is synonymous with beating ourselves up for too long a period of time at too high an intensity during the day. And that's, that's really not what it takes to achieve true health. What is it about the outdoors and going for a walk like you are now or um, doing some sort of physical activity outdoors that is so important? Oh, well, you know, I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily one thing, but, you know, for example, if you watch the documentary Earthing or read an you know, excellent book by the same name uh, called Earthing, I actually had the, the author or one of the authors on, on my podcast, you know, uh, you'll, you'll learn how the earth, when you're in touch with it, with your hands or your, or your feet, it actually emits these, uh, these negative ions that help to restore the electrochemical balance across your cell membrane, help your mitochondria to function properly help inflammation to be removed from the cells. And, you know, the, the earth just gets charged with these negative ions every time a lightning bolt strikes the face of the planet. And it's, it's wonderful for you to go out and, and soak up these same type of ions. As a matter of fact, if you look at like some really expensive air filters or, or um, devices on, you know, Amazon or elsewhere, you can actually buy negative ion generators. And a lot of times those are built into central air units or air filters just because they're so wonderful to be able to breathe in during the day. They help the air kind of feel clean and crisp and fresh, which anybody has experienced by taking a deep breath outdoors versus a deep breath, say, indoors in a stale office. So there's the earthing and the grounding component. We know that sunlight, not just the, the infrared wavelengths of sunlight, but also even the, you know, the oft-vilified UVA and UVB radiation from sunlight are fantastic for everything from vitamin D to the formation of nitric oxide, which opens up all the blood vessels in your body, to staving off seasonal affective disorder and depression, uh, to um, uh, increasing the activity of something called cytochrome P450, which is a you know part of your part of your cell that's responsible for making ATP. So there's the sunlight factor. There's the 
the earthing and the grounding factor. There's the unpredictability factor, right? When you're walking outside or you're playing a sport outside or running through the forest, you know, you're, you're ducking, you're lunging, you're sometimes jumping, you're stepping sideways, and you're, you're engaged in a lot more biomechanically unpredictable activities than you might be if you were just, say, indoors walking on a treadmill. So you're training your body in a little bit more of a dynamic way. And then if you look at, you know, water, for example, we know that, you know, not only, you know, you know, natural water from the outdoors like spring water is, is far more mineral rich and nourishing to the body than, you know, stale water that's been sitting in a municipal water supply or that's been, you know, uh, heavily laden with pharmaceuticals or pesticides or herbicides or, or glyphosate or the like. But we also know that even water that you swim in outdoors, you know, lakes, rivers, especially the ocean, they're rich in minerals. They're chock full of more of these negative ions. They subject your body sometimes to variations in temperature that force your body to produce what are called heat shock proteins, which make your cells more resilient. Um, and so there's, there's that component as well. The, the other thing to bear in mind is that the more time that you spend outside, the more your senses become tuned, right? The, when you're looking at a computer screen, which is close to your face or a smartphone that's close to your face, you'd think that your eyes aren't having to work as hard because that thing is close to you. But the way the eyes work is the muscles around the eye actually have to contract the whole time you're looking at something that's close to your face. And the, the eye muscles actually relax when you're looking at objects out in the distance or looking at the horizon. This is probably why we're seeing a disturbingly high rate of nearsightedness amongst our youth because they're simply not out looking at the horizon, gazing at trees far ahead, looking up as they're walking to where they're going because they're just tuned to a, to a screen or a book that's very close to their face. And so there's, there's the sensory component as well. And of, and of course, the same could be said for tuning in with the ears to the sound of birds and the, the rustle of wind amongst the trees, being able to, to smell the different essential oils that are emitted by the plants that you might be walking by in nature, even the proprioceptive feel of the ground against your feet or a rock or a tree against your hands. There, there's a great deal of sensory input that occurs as well which is also very stimulating to the brain and can result in what's called neuroplasticity uh, or, the, or the growth of new brain neurons, a greater ability to be able to learn new things. And so the list goes on and on, but, but it really is pretty, pretty uh, surprising, you know, how, how beneficial uh, the, this planet that we live on can be for the human body if we reconnect to it from an ancestral standpoint. Yes, it's unbelievably fascinating. Something that you have said, and I find extremely interesting is that there's more to achieve than than just like a healthy diet and exercise. And yeah. I know that you have talked kind of a bit about brain fog. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about why it's more than just being healthy and fit? Sure. That's a very astute question. Um, and, and a lot of times what you've described is kind of painted by the medical community as so-called, you know, adrenal fatigue. Yeah. Oh, you're tired all the time. You know, we're not quite sure what's wrong, but you, know, you probably have adrenal fatigue when in fact it's far more complex than that. And there's a variety of factors that can lead to that kind of blah feeling or brain fog in the afternoon. And I'll, I'll describe what a couple of those factors would be momentarily, but uh, the, this should all be couched with the realization that a big part of this is psychological as well. If you don't have purpose in life, if you don't have, as the Japanese would call ikigai or the Italians or your plan de vida, your reason for living that rips you out of bed every morning with a big smile on your face because you know you're going out and fully living your life's purpose with the unique skill set that you have, 
it doesn't matter how tuned in you are physically, you're still going to have some resistance to simply being productive during the day because you'll have that overwhelming sense that whatever you're doing is not super duper meaningful or fulfilling. And you know, this often also leads to you searching out for something meaningful or fulfilling when you do finally finish your day of, of work. And for many people that might be marijuana or a glass of wine or, or, or drugs or, or the television or junk food or something else that just kind of satisfies that urge to temporarily feel fulfilled or happy. And so, you know, I, I tell my kids this, I, I, I do this with myself, I, I, you know, train people the same way. You must have a single succinct purpose statement for your life that ties in the things that you're good at, the things you love to do when you're a kid, the things that make time go by quickly for you now. And you must be able to form that into your personal purpose statement, right? Like mine is to read, write, learn, teach, sing, speak, compete, and create in full presence and selfless love to the glory of God, right? And if, if I wake up in the morning and I'm a little tired and I tell myself, hey, today um, I'm going to be able to get up and I'm going to be able to, 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 to teach people on a podcast or I'm going to be able to get up and I'm going to be able to compete to full excellence and my full capability. Or I'm going to be able to get up and I'm going to be able to create an amazing article that people are going to be able to learn from. Or I'm just going to be able to get up and, and read research articles for two hours so I can turn around and assimilate that information and teach it to people, I'll be super duper fulfilled during a day of work. And so, you know, no matter where your health is at, understand that you must have purpose for your life. And I'm telling you this because I have been pretty much like at the peak of health, right? I've been the fittest guy on the planet. I've had every last blood and biomarker dialed in. I've gone from, you know, sick and inflamed and pre-diabetic and, and, you know, super low testosterone, testosterone of like an eight-year-old girl. And, you know, I, I've turned all that around and felt super healthy. Yet I can tell you, even if I'm at my healthiest, my, at my peak health, I still have to remind myself of that purpose statement to be able to truly have what, you know, as I refer to in my book, boundless energy at my beck and call all day long. But let's say you have your purpose statement. Let's say you're, you're moving you're exercising, you're eating what might be a healthy diet for you, uh, and you still have fatigue. Well, there's a few things to take into consideration. Um, one is the link between the gut and the brain. We know that the bacteria in our gut are responsible for producing a lot of feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters, like uh, serotonin, for example, being one of the most important. Uh, GABA, one that helps us relax and sleep and feel less anxious, is another. And if your gut is inflamed, or if you have what's called leaky gut, or you have poor bacterial balance in your gut, that's one thing that can lead to low energy levels because of that intimate connection between the gut and the brain. You also have your adrenal glands sitting atop of either kidney, where your adrenal glands are a storehouse of vitamin C and of minerals. So if your diet or your supplementation is deficient in vitamin C or in minerals, that might be something that you have to add in to allow your adrenals to function properly. You might be, uh, let's say, a, a woman who's aging, who uh, all of a sudden has a lot more estrogen in her body than she does progesterone because the, the uterus and some of the other body tissues aren't producing as much progesterone with age. Well, in that case, you might have to start limiting your amount of exposure to environmental estrogens from things like plastic bottles and personal care products and household cleaning supplies and perhaps even you know get yourself on some some DHEA or some progesterone cream to be able to balance out those hormones. Uh, or, you know, one other example might be that you are eating what you perceive to be a healthy diet, but 
you, uh, like me, for example, I, I got a really good gold standard food allergy test about seven years ago. And it turns out that even though I was eating what I thought was a healthy diet, there were certain things in my diet, you know, particularly legumes and, uh, and, and green beans, especially, which are kind of a form of a legume. I'm actually allergic to those. And so I'd get brain fog in the afternoon after having my healthy salad with the black beans and the chickpeas and the green beans on it. And it turns out that that was simply due to an immune reaction that my body was mounting because the diet that was healthy for one person was not the healthy diet for me. And so that's another thing to bear in mind is even if you are eating healthy, maybe for your body, that healthy diet actually isn't the best choice for you. So those are just a, you know, a few examples. You know, I've got dozens of other examples of, in, in my book of what could limit you from having the, the energy that you'd want. But you know, have your purpose in life, sure. You know, uh, eat healthy, have a good physical movement protocol. But even then, you might have to dig into some of these nooks and crannies. And fortunately, we live in an era in which self-quantification, you know, blood testing, gut testing, genetic testing, et cetera, is a lot more affordable and accessible to people than it used to be. So it's not that hard to gather some data about your body and begin to say, okay, well, I'm low in vitamin D. I'm going to throw some of that into the mix. And, uh, you know, I need more choline, so I'm going to add more eggs and, and walnuts into my diet. Or I have an inflammatory reaction to coffee. I might need to switch to, to chicory root or green tea, right? And so these are the decisions that over time can add up big time in terms of your overall health, your longevity, and, and your levels of energy during the day. Going back to purpose, because I think that's like an unbelievably, uh, it's something that drives so many people. And once you've got that, you know, it, it really does change your life. How do you suggest that others find their purpose? Oh, I love that question. So um, I actually wrote an article a couple of months ago called How Do You Find Your Purpose in Life? And I, I kind of kind of detail exactly how to do it. And essentially, it comes down to What'd you like to do when you were a kid, right? What kind of things you naturally liked when you were a kid? Was it, uh, was it music? Was it, was it reading? Was it painting? Was it uh, exercising? Was it um, just being with other people and being the class clown? You know, and, and you, you write down all the things you love to do when you were a kid. And I actually highly recommend that people have a sit down with their parents. If your mother or your father are still alive, take them out to dinner, call them on the phone, have them over to your house. And simply say, can you tell, tell, me, tell me more about myself as a child? What, what did I like to do? What did you guys think I was going to be good at? Um, you know, what kind of things did I spend a lot of time doing? And take note of that. And then also, in addition to that, think about the things that put you in the so-called zone right now. Right? The things that you do that make time go by just very quickly. Like for me, writing is an example of that. You can put a blank page in front of me or a blank Google Doc. Tell me a topic to write on. And... If it's 10 a.m., I'll write till 1 p.m. It'll feel to me like 20 minutes has gone by and I'll still be writing and happy as a clam. Whereas my wife, uh, she would be crying, weeping within like 10 minutes because she hates to write and she hates that blank page. But she's an artist. You get you hand her a paintbrush and a canvas and she'll paint for, for hours on end because that's what puts her in the zone. So what did you like to do when, when you were a kid? What makes time go by really quickly for you now? And then what things do you, do you naturally feel come easy, right? What, you don't have to feel guilty. Like you don't have to have this puritanical work ethic that work must be sweat and blood and tears all day long. You know, I think it was, uh, it was um, Edison who said that he, he never worked a day in his life. And, you know, Mark Twain uh, commented that most of his work, he just considered to be play. 
And so if you think about the things that just really come easy to you, right? Like, again, it could be writing, it could be singing, it could be speaking, it could be mathematics or computer programming. And usually that's also the kind of stuff that puts you in a zone. Sometimes you have to pair that with things that you enjoyed to do when you were a little kid. And then once you've woven all that together, you just make a list of the things that put you in the zone now, the things you like to do when you were a kid, the things that come easy to you. And then you begin to hone your purpose statement based on that unique way that you were built. And that's very important. And I always tell my kids this, your purpose statement is not really about you. It's not about what's going to make me happy, what's going to make me fulfilled, even what's going to give me more energy during the day. To really feel ultimately fulfilled by your purpose statement, you take all those things and you ask yourself, how can I go out and love other people with this purpose statement, right? So I've identified that, you know, I love math when I was a kid. I'm super good at computer programming now. I love logic. I, I really want to design apps and video games and, um, you know, and, and work on computers. So how can I help the most people? How can I love the most people with this skill? How can, how can I make the most impact on this planet and create an app that's going to whatever, teach people how to meditate every day or create a computer program that, that cleans up people's computers every morning so they don't have a care in the world about their computer running out of hard drive space. And if you couch it in that term, then that spirit of service is going to be super fulfilling for you versus um, what a lot of people think of is, okay, so I have all these skills. I have this purpose. How can I make more money? How can I buy a nicer car? How can I get a bigger home with this skill? Trust me, if you've identified your purpose and then you have an others facing attitude with that purpose and you couch it in terms of loving other people, then the money will come. I mean, the, the career will come, but you just need to, to focus on others, you know, follow that golden rule. And I think that's the best way to approach the mm -hmm. actual, you know, boots on the ground utilization of your purpose statement. I totally agree. How has religion played a part in your life? You know, I grew up in a, in a Christian house and I think that some of, some of the things that were instilled in me, I still find quite valuable. Like um, that, that sense that there is an absolute morality, that there is a right or wrong, that despite God being unexplainable by science, we know that in every person's heart, we kind of know deep down inside what's right, what's wrong. And, you know, whereas, you know, Marxism or nihilism or, or any of these other kind of worldviews ultimately come down to what's right is, is what makes you happy. What's right is, um, you know, what, what you, what, what you derive the greatest pleasure from. But the problem with that is if everybody's doing what makes them happy at some point, someone's going to decide that, you know, murder makes them happy or, you know, criminal life makes them happy. And with the absence of an absolute morality or an absolute truth, I think it can threaten to throw culture into a little bit of a, a chaotic scenario. So that's, that's one thing is, is just this, this sense that there's absolute truth. Another is that, you know, I, I live life with a great deal of hope because I think that there's a story written out for my life. And a lot of people say, oh, well, then you believe in magic. You believe in fairy tales, Ben. You, not only do you believe that some things are unexplainable by science, but that, you know, some big bearded, you know, fellow up in the sky created the flowers and the trees. And that, you know, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you have that, that email from somebody who wants you to go speak in Louisiana. And then you also get a text from your friend in Louisiana who said he's really down that day and, you know, misses people that that's not a coincidence. That was meant to be, you need to get on a plane to Louisiana because that's part of the, 
magical story that's written for your life. And when, you know, when you believe in magic and stories and fairy tales, I'd honestly rather live in a world that's more like J.R.R. Tolkien or Chronicles of Narnia, where there's, you know, magic and elves and dwarves and gods and goddesses and a whole spiritual dimension than I would live in a cold, hard, dark world where we're all just a bunch of pieces of flesh and blood floating on a giant rock through the universe, seeing who can have the most sex and get the most cars and build the biggest house that we die and it's over, right? I, I like to instead believe that there's a little bit more to life than that. And then finally, probably one of the biggest ways that religion has influenced my life, especially because, you know, I, I'm a Christian, uh, which means that I'm a follower of, of, of Christ, is that the, the Christian story is that um, we don't have to bear a lot of shame. We don't have to bear a lot of suffering. We don't have to, lot, we don't have to bear a lot of regrets because, um, because uh, Jesus died for our sins and we can cast all of that upon him, walk away as pure as snow, feeling no shame and no suffering. And I found it to be really good for me, you know, when I do mess up in life to know that I'm forgiven, that everything's okay and that I can release any feelings of shame or guilt, uh, you know, say, I'm sorry, repent, become a better person, learn from my mistakes and then move on and be better the next day. And um, I've also found that to be an incredibly hopeful and enlightening way to live my life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, I know that you're quite uh, disciplined in a lot of the stuff that you do and you, you have routines as most of us do. How do you embrace the unknown? Yeah, that's actually incredibly difficult for me because I'm a, I'm a real type A. I'm a preparer. I'm a planner. I like to, to step into a race and, and get the exact map and know where everything's going to be in the exact mileage and know, you know, when I'm going to eat, when I'm going to drink, you know, how fast the competitor is going to be going. I like to know the exact lay of the land if I'm hunting and the exact species and where I'm going to eat and what I'm going to take and how much my pack weighs. And so, you know, for me, a big part of being confident when you tackle the unknown, like for example, like I mentioned, I did Spartan racing for four years and you'll show up to a race and they'll show you kind of like part of the map, but then half of it is blurred out or there's little sections that are, that are black where you can't see what the obstacles are that you're going to have to overcome. And you simply must go in incredibly physically prepared for anything that might get thrown at you in the race, right? You might not know whether you're going to be hauling a half filled keg or a couple of sandbags or, you know, a giant sled full of gravel over a mile at some point in the race, but you do know, okay, I need grip strength. I need to be able to handle an unwieldy heavy object for, you know, a good 15 to 20 minutes. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'm actually just going to make sure I'm, I'm as prepared as possible for what's going to get thrown at me. Um, another big one, when I trained with the SEAL Fit organization, which is kind of like Navy SEAL Hell Week for civilians that they do down in Encinitas, California, is that entire thing is meant to be uh, a confusing, you don't know what's going to come at you. Or you wake up, in, well, you don't wake up in the morning because you don't sleep at all, but you might, you know, in the, in the morning, you might be doing a 26 mile night hike uh, and crawling under barbed wire and stopping for burpees. And, and then you might get back and, and you're getting sprayed down with a cold hose, and then going and jumping in the Pacific Ocean for eight hours, then putting your pack back on and rucking another eight miles along the beach. And for that, for that part where, you know, you don't know what's coming next, but you have to maintain the mental fortitude to be able to handle anything. Well, guess what? It comes back to something I was describing earlier. You have your why. You mm -hmm. have your purpose. Like for me, my why 
was I wanted to come back home to my little boys who were six years old at the time, show them the little medal that showed that I had finished and inspire them to become stronger men because they saw what dad had done, right? And so having a really strong why, going in with some amount of preparedness, even though you may not know exactly what's going to get thrown at you. And then finally, being able to control internal stress. That's huge. And, and I got to tell you, my, my number one tactic that I use when life is, is you know, throwing bullets from the matrix out of my computer's email inbox, hmm. or I've, you know, I, I planned the day a certain way and all of a sudden I've got a dozen phone calls I'm supposed to be on and my kid's sick and you know, the garage door is broken. Um, for me, it's breath work. You know, I use a lot of, of deep inhales and exhales. I do a lot of alternate nostril breathing, which is in through the right nose, cover the right nose, out, or into the right nostril, mm. cover the right nostril, out through the left nostril. I do a lot of box breathing, four count in, four count hold, four count out, four count hold. Uh, chapter three of my book is, is all about how to become a breathwork ninja. And I've, I've interviewed all these crazy breathwork practitioners on my show, you know, like James Nestor and Scott Carney and Narajnal Jeev and and Wim Hof. And, you know, it's crazy how this free thing that's built into our bodies allows us to either psych ourselves up or, or bring ourselves down to a state of peace and, and de-stress us. And so for me, when I get into a, a, a state, and for me, that is the unknown that I would find very stressful. I'm always very aware of my breath and using my breath to control my physiology, my emotions and my stress response. It's so interesting you start talking about breath because I've been doing a little bit of work with breath um, at the moment and I find it fascinating. I'm doing this kind of kundalini breath, which is actually unbelievably vigorous and, you know, you're sweating oh, yeah. by the end. Have you done that one? Where you, it's from, yeah, it's I, from the yeah. um, perineum to the pineal yeah. gland? Yeah, a lot of breath of fire, a lot of uh, pranayama type of breath work a lot of movement of energy from the root chakra yes. up to the crown chakra. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's useful when you need to energize yourself, especially yeah. when you need to breathe energy up to your crown. Um, I also practice a lot of tantric sex and it's, it's very useful, especially for guys if they want to do multiple orgasm or they want to be able to kind of hold in and then basically finish at a later time, but still experience the, the, the sensation of an orgasm where, you know, when you're making love, you're actually directing the breath up and down your spine. And, you know, when you feel as though too much energy is getting down in that root chakra, you know, down in the sexual organs, you use your breath to drive it back up to your head and doing some of that intense breath work during lovemaking, you know, that, that's where I use that, that style of breath work the most. Uh, but, you know, originally, like you, I learned it from Kundalini Yoga and since then have gone on and studied some Soma breath work and then some of the Pranayama work, the inner fire stuff you know, Wim Hof incorporates some of these concepts as well to be able to deal with stress like cold water or to be able to enhance the, the, uh, the killer cell activity for the immune system. So yeah, there's a variety of uses for that. That, that is what something I would consider to be a little bit more activating breath work. Yeah. Um, and I think that learning something like that, then pairing it with a different style of breath work that you can use to calm yourself mm -hmm. down and to relax is, is really a good one, two combo. What's the most mystical experience that you've ever had? <laughs> mystical uh i've done just about every plant medicine known to man from you know psilocybin to iboga to you know also some of the synthetics like lsd and, and ketamine etc but i would say probably the most mystical experience was um you know up until my mid-30s i was very very egotistical 
very much convinced I was God's gift to mankind. You know, even the way I was raised, my parents always told me, you know, that I, that I was perfect and that I, you know, I was smarter than other kids. And I grew up with with a little bit of, of kind of a Messiah complex or a hero complex. And, um, you know, really had to get deep into dissolving that ego, into not shaming others, into accepting other people. Um, you know, and again, even though I was a Christian, I, I still struggle a lot with just like an overinflated ego. And, you know, at one point I did about a 27-hour plant medicine ceremony with a variety of plants from the Amazon, you know, involved in, you know, lots of, lots of puking and vomit and, and, you know, going deep into battling with my own psyche and, and, who I was and what my purpose in life really truly was and, you know, and, and whether or not my ego was destroying me or actually serving other people. And uh, I wouldn't wish that experience upon my worst enemy because it was very unpleasant. And, you know, multiple times I thought I was dead and literally had kind of like an end of life type of experience, you know, similar to what you might hear people talk about when they do Ibogaine or, or ayahuasca or, or heavy doses of DMT, for example. But I came out of that, um, honestly, just a far more humble and an open person. I don't think that's necessarily what everyone needs to do to, to, to shatter the ego. And frankly, I think that, you know, not to rabbit hole too much. I think that if young people had some kind of a rite of passage, which used to just be programmed into most cultures and tribes for much of human history, you know, where a boy might go out into the wilderness to, to harvest his first animal, um, or, or a girl might, um, well, uh, let, let me put it this way, you know, girls do have kind of a biological passage into womanhood that's, that's pretty pronounced. It's, it's like you, uh, you, you, you start bleeding and, and you begin to become a woman and that's very apparent. And it, it seems that culture has, has realized that men especially tend to, tend to have this huge overinflated ego that can often accompany the absence of this, this rite of passage from boyhood into manhood. And I think if I'd have gone through something like that early on in life, that I wouldn't have spent a lot of my time, you know, trying to prove to the world that I was a man, trying to do all these masochistic activities to prove myself or to, to feed my ego. And, you know, I, I think that that's some kind of a rite of passage. You know, my boys will do their, their rite of passage into adolescence in about six months. And, you know, they'll be out in the wilderness for about five days, you know, learning and foraging and hunting and, and off on their own. And then, They'll have another when they're 15 that will be a, a rite of passage into adulthood that will be, you know, an even more profound experience. And, you know, th- those will be marked times where, you know, they're told, okay, now you're, you're an adolescent, you're becoming a man. And then that second one, okay, now you're passing into adulthood. You're going to be expected to help to pitch in to, to, you know, feed the family and, and, you know, provide money for the household. And, you know, I think that, that, those deep mystical experiences many people rely on to shatter their egos, like I've just described, if they were to have some kind of a rite of passage that recognized their transition into adulthood early in life, we would see far less of a need for those types of experiences later in life. How has plant medicine changed your life? Uh, in a lot of ways, I would say microdosing with plant medicine can be a wonderful way to merge the left and right hemisphere of the brain and to allow for more creativity or focus or thinking in patterns that you might not otherwise think because even microdoses can kind of open up your ego a little bit and cause you to become less judgmental of solutions that you might not otherwise have thought of. So for example, microdosing with psilocybin or microdosing with LSD can do that. 
Um, microdosing can also help you to become more sociable, uh, more open, and more engaged in transparency. You know, that would be something like microdosing with a heart opener, such as um, MDMA. And then um, my wife and I, on a quarterly basis, we'll have kind of a retreat that we go on where we'll go deep into plant medicine, but we'll be together. We'll have journals, a digital recorder. We'll sit facing each other in bed for hours mm. and talking about our family, our relationship, our personal vision for ourselves, our vision for the future for our family. And that's really, I mean, I, I would say that those experiences all have almost, it's, it's weird. My wife and I are like so spiritually intertwined that we can nearly read each other's minds we never argue. We never fight. It's, it's, it's absolutely nuts. Our, our house is just like this magical place to be in because my wife and I are so hyper-connected and that energy seems to also kind of transition into the boys as well. So that would be, that'd be one thing. What's your greatest hope for society today? My greatest hope for society today is that we would, we would release our spirit of fear, specifically that we would release this seemingly and rapidly growing phenomenon of relying upon media and politicians and power moguls to tell us what we're going to do, to tell us how bad the world is going to be, and to instead be more educated, be more informed make better decisions for ourselves and take more personal responsibility. Um, just because I, I think it's really a spirit of fear that sparked a lot of this pandemic that we're in right now. Certainly there is a, there is a virus that can be dangerous that, that we're having to deal with. But I think that the, the fear versus, um, you know, a sense of personal responsibility and taking care of oneself and enhancing one's immune system and going out and helping others in the community that I wish I would have seen as a response to this, I think really hampered us in some ways and, and almost shackled the world's economy and others. So I would really like to see people replace fear with joy, with trust, with proactivity, with, uh, with love for others. And, you know, I think if there's one thing that, that society needs to release a hold on, it's this concept that things are going to hell in a handbasket and we need to be afraid. I think we should instead think that, think that things are going to be great. Things are going to be amazing. All we need to do is love other people, trust our purpose, take charge, take personal responsibility, get out, do massive action, and, and just release this entire spirit of the discomfort and, the, and the, the paralyzing mentality associated with just living with the spirit of fear. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Honestly, it would be the one I described earlier, not being a super proud, egotistical person who thought I was God's gift to mankind, you know, and, and arrogant and perfect. And um, it took me a long time to, to realize that, A, I don't have to be who I think the world expects me to be. That's one common regret of the dying is that they weren't their true authentic mm -hmm. selves because they simply, because they, they had an overinflated ego, kind of became that person they thought the world wanted them to be. And... Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's partly that. And then it is, um, realizing that it's okay to be broken. It's okay to have your own personal issues and it's okay to not be perfect. Even if you're a fitness or a health icon like me, who I thought for a long time could only be successful if I was personally perfectly healthy and perfectly fit, because I figured that's the only way people would listen to me. 
And, you know, learning that I can just be myself, learn my lessons, sometimes the hard way, show the world just a, a real person who's, who struggled with a lot of stuff, that that's the kind of person that's relatable and transparent and that people can depend upon. So that, that was just a really hard lesson for me to learn that I, that I just didn't have to be perfect and I didn't have to be who the world thought or I thought the world wanted me to be. And probably part of that, you know, I didn't really mention this when we talked about homeschooling. Probably part of that was, you know, being homeschooled. And um, when I would get out in the public in places where I thought that I might be slightly abnormal because I was homeschooled, that if I could prove to the world that I was just a really, really great person and even better than other people, that it would just cover all of that. And in some ways, you know, those, those are habits and those were worldviews that... I had to change. It took me a really long time to realize that. Mm. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I would say it comes straight from the Bible in uh, chapter eight of Mark and the, the gospel chapters of the Bible. And it is, it's the following. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world, but they lose their own soul? All right. What does it matter if you make all the money and have all the cars and the biggest house and the best sex and the most attractive girlfriends and boyfriends and spouses and you know the kids who are the superstar athletes of their sports team and the most money in your bank account if your spirit, your soul, that one part of you that will go on to live forever is shriveled and shrunk up and neglected inside of you. And this is why I think that the habits of gratitude, love, relationships, singing, meditating, breathwork and all these so-called spiritual disciplines are as important, well, no, more important than any physical disciplines or mental disciplines. And I think that if you care for your spirit and you tie that into your life's purpose, that's where you get true fulfillment and true happiness. What's your favorite prayer? The one that I pray uh, just about every morning because I wake up in the morning and I'll go for a walk or do a sauna session. Then I go, I have a cold pool. I'll go jump in the cold pool. And as I'm swimming underwater back and forth, I say this prayer and it says, it goes like this. I surrender all to you. Please turn me into the father and into the husband who you would have for me to be into a man who will fulfill your great commission and remove from me all judgments of others. Grant me your heavenly wisdom. Remove from me my worldly temptation and teach me how to listen to your still small voice in the silence. In Jesus' name, amen. And I began praying that prayer about four years ago. And I was actually thinking the other day about all the elements of that prayer, removing judgments from others, learning how to listen to the still small voice in the silent, and just being quiet sometimes and stopping to smell the roses, um, loving other people as fully as possible and serving other people as fully as possible being a good father, being a good husband. And I thought, geez, all of, all of these have come true. You know, mm. I've been praying this for four. I can tell you for a fact, How when nice I started praying that, that prayer, no, none of those boxes were checked. And, you know, I, I was saying, I thought, well, geez, maybe I need to change my prayer because it's like all of these were answered. And so that's, Aww. that's my favorite prayer. That's beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is understanding that the meek and the humble are the great people. The people who go out and serve others with no selfishness and with no thought of their own profit or their own gain, those are the people who become great. And sometimes it might not be great in this lifetime. 
right? Sometimes it might be great in a life to come. But I think that serving others, being humble, loving others, setting aside your ego, which seems to be a little bit of a repeated theme of this show, that's how you become great. And it's very paradoxical, isn't it? Ben Greenfield, thank you for all your fabulous work and for always striving to get information into the minds of so many. We are so very grateful for you. Well, I'm grateful that you had me on and uh, super honored. So thank you. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.